Yeah, I don't know, man. I didn't have like, you know, I had some relatives that were into real estate, not immediate family, it was more extended family. And I saw sure. that growing up. I always wanted, I wanted more, right? I was always very, I had huge goals and I knew I didn't want to live an ordinary life. And I knew that to get there, I was going to have to take certain risks. And to me, as long as you're taking calculated risks, you really can't go wrong. If you're, if you're smart about it, right, you, you should always be in a good position, but you got to take risks. It's, it's, it's part of the growth process. And so... Hello, you're listening to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, presented by Brandon Elliott. This show will be going over all aspects of real estate investing and is intended to educate, motivate, and prepare you to take action on your first or next real estate investment. For more information, please visit brandonelliotinvestments.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. I am your host, Mr. Brandon Elliott. Very excited today. We have a special guest. David, I think you're over in Texas, right? I mean, not right now. Austin, Texas. Yeah, not right now. Yeah, I'm I'm based in Austin, Texas, though. Okay, I love it. So you're a multifamily guy. You you have just about a thousand doors at this point, which is awesome. You're 25 years old and you've created multifamily deal analyzer, a spreadsheet, but you're constantly customizing and, and improving the way that you're helping out people, really. I mean, you're always giving back and showing people, building communities and showing people how they can invest in real estate, just like you have. A lot of your deals in the beginning started off with zero money out of pocket. And so you're definitely a creative type of investor. But for anybody out there that doesn't know exactly who you are, do you mind just diving into like who you are, where you're from, and what you're up to? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on here, man. I'm excited to share with your community here. Hopefully inspire some people. So I started, I was 19 years old. I was born and raised in outside of Detroit, Michigan, suburbs of Detroit. And I always wanted to be in real estate. I started my first business at 13. It was a landscaping company. So I kind of had that. Uh, did you as well? I see no, no, I it. didn't, but I love okay. it. I got my first job <laughs> at 12, but I was working for other people. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. No, that's awesome. And so, you know, people like you and me, they're, you know, hard, hardworking individuals. And I always had really big goals. And I knew that real estate is something that anyone can do. And the more and more I looked into it, I, I discovered that, you know, there are people that started really with nothing and built big portfolios. And so it's like, man, wow, this is something if I really put my mind to it, there's no reason I can't create wealth over a long period of time. And so junior year of college, jumped in, I started wholesaling, got my real estate license, never really used a license, but I wholesaled for a little bit. I figured, you know, this isn't really what I like to be doing. This is a day job, right? At the end of the day, when I stop wholesaling, or let's say you're flipping homes, whatever you're doing, you stop doing that, your income stops, you know, 90 days later. So... I wanted to do bigger deals anyways. That's what really excited me was doing large projects, big properties, you know, two commas and bigger, million dollar properties and larger. And so dove into multifamily within that first six months I bought, I was 20. My first six months I bought two properties, two 12 unit apartment complexes, no money down for me. I got sweat equity in both of those deals because I brought investors to the table. They put the money up. I lined up the bank loan. Uh, we bought it. And so, you know, they got a piece of the deal. I got a piece of the deal. And then I self-managed it, ran it. 
et cetera. And, and that's what a lot of people refer to nowadays as a syndication. At the time, it, was, it wasn't it was still quite as big of a yeah. buzz term as it is nowadays, but that was in 2016. And so, you know, fast forward, I've bought several properties since, done about 10 large deals like that, close to a thousand units. And now I develop properties ground up and own a real estate software company also. So that's all I do. I love it, man. It's so inspiring. It really is. You know, starting off, I think the mindset alone, you know, just at a very young age, you weren't scared or intimidated by real estate. You were like, anybody could do it. Did you just have a circle around you or, you know, uh, friends, family, parents, or somebody that kind of just gave you that motivation or, or where did that come from? Yeah, I don't know, man. I didn't have like, you know, I had some relatives that were into real estate, not immediate family, it was more extended family. And I saw sure. that growing up. I always wanted, I wanted more, right? I was always very, I had huge goals and I knew I didn't want to live an ordinary life. And I knew that to get there, I was going to have to take certain risks. And to me, as long as you're taking calculated risks, you really can't go wrong. If you're, if you're smart about it, right, you, you should always be in a good position, but you got to take risks. It's part of the growth process. And so maybe I was just too young and, and naive and <laughs> ignorant to the risks, but I, I, I went in, I had zero fear, man. It was all it was all progression, all growth minded, you know, thoughts and, and what can I do to solve this problem to get to the next level? That's, that's all it was. So, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So 2016 was your first multifamily deal and you started managing it right away. You know, mm-hmm. what, what kind of learning curves did you walk into with that? And, and how, how did you confidently get everybody else on the team to, to basically allow you to take that position because you've never done any management before, right? No, I never did. Uh, convincing the bank at first, you know, was a little tough. I had a partner on it that signed on the loan that had owned rentals before. And so, you know, we kind of put a little resume together. Yeah. I didn't really bring much to the table on the resume, but <laughs> I had my name on it. And, and you know, you position yourself right. And I, I feel like, you know, that's what we had to do to get it done. But then once we get into it, you know, I'm the kind of person where I'll put my mind to it. We create some good systems around it and and everything ran pretty smoothly. But I mean, management is a, I mean, I'm just going to say it's pain in the ass, right? Nobody, I don't like managing properties. It's not something I enjoy doing. A lot of problems arise all the time. One of the properties I didn't raise enough money for, you know, a little learning experience. I didn't raise enough money to do all the renovations. And so you know, I'm trying to hit my investors 8% preferred return. And there's no way I'm going to let myself miss that. So I'm in there, I'm hanging up the sign on the wall, and I'm fixing light bulbs, and I'm painting units to save some money. You know, all of that, I charged the management fee, probably half of what I should have charged. But it was all for the purpose of really learning and building a little track record for myself. You know, yeah. I didn't need to make a lot of money on those first two deals because I knew I'd make money late at some point, right? It, it was just getting started. I needed to do it. I like that. So you mentioned, you know, management you don't like. What else don't you like when it comes down to the multifamily scene? And then let's talk about some of the things that you do like. That's a good question. What do I not like? Management's definitely one of them. I like hiring management out. You know, I've done quite a bit of it and I don't mind it. The the renovation side of things, I've managed a lot of it. I definitely don't like personally doing it, but I normally hire a really good GC that doesn't need a lot of 
babysitting. Uh, that, yeah. You know, that's something else I like doing. Somebody I trust, somebody I know, and that's hard to find. We've got a really good one in Texas called Exodus Construction out of Dallas, you know, but I think hiring a good GC is, you know, that's not something I, I, I love to do. What I do enjoy doing and what I'm best at is finding the deal, structuring it, you know, negotiating it, figuring out what price to pay, and then lining up financing the investors and getting the deal closed, which is, in my opinion, it's an art form. You know, that whole negotiation transaction process, oh, yeah. it's, there's so many things that can go wrong. And so I, I love that side of the business. Yeah, I would say I definitely love the negotiating part. Raising money can be fun at sometimes. And then other times it's like when the, the time really starts ticking and it starts counting down, you're yeah. like, oh, oh yeah. crap. You know? It's stressful, man. It's stressful. Yeah. yeah. It is. You know, it's it's fun if you're good at it. It sucks yeah. if you're not. So in the beginning, it wasn't fun because sure. I, you know, I wasn't good at it. I did just about everything wrong and I had no track record. So it was tough, but you know, you figure out little ways to get through that. I love that. Yeah. I, I think, I don't know. I lost a lot of sleep my first couple of times raising a, a bunch of money on, <laughs> on some deals out here in San Diego, you know? <laughs> Dude. I was 21 and my hair started turning gray. Yeah. I had raised, I had raised $2 million. And the most I'd raised before that was like 200,000. Sure. And it was not easy. It was not easy, but if you package it right, it's the key is packaging it right. Having a good plan. And if you have, if you have the deal package, right, you have a good plan for it. And it makes sense. I think at least sophisticated investors can easily sniff out if it's not actually a good deal. Right. The investors that aren't as sophisticated, I think can still tell if, it, if it's not a great deal, it won't have a good story behind it. Every good deal has a good story. And yep. so it's easy for me to sell an investor on a deal where it's like, dude, I've bought in this area before. I'm buying for 50 a door where yep. everyone else is paying 70 a door. The rents are $250 below market value and it's 95% occupied right now. So we're going to go in, we're going to renovate units, get their, the rents up 250 bucks. We're buying it for, you know, 7 million. It's going to be worth 14.2 million when we're done with it. And I, you know, I tell them that story and, and yeah. they don't even need to see anything else. They're like, okay, I trust you. You sound like you know what you're doing. Yeah. And so I think that's the key. Sound like you know what you're doing. I mean, actually put a good deal in front of them yeah. and then perform. So when it comes down to like investor packets, are you spending a good amount of time on that or are you hiring it out to be able to to get them, you know, physical something in, in their hands to be able to see or in their eyes on their computer, you know? Yeah, no, I, I mean, when I first started and I was building them out, I spent dozens and dozens of hours trying to build them, perfect them. And so we've got a really good template at this point we use. And I have a transaction manager at this point on our team that will fill, you know, basically take the data from the underwriting and everything else and fill them out. And then I'll review it and, and edit it a little bit and then we'll finalize it. And then that's what we share with the investors. Nice. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So when it comes down to some learning curves that you've personally experienced, is there anything off the top of your head that some of the new listeners maybe transitioning into real estate could potentially learn from and not make the same mistakes? Yeah, transitioning to multifamily, I think everyone's got their eyes on doing just these huge properties, large projects, 100 plus units. It all sounds so cool, right? Yeah, sounds sexy. It sounds sexy. (laughs) I don't think it's sexy to just get your name on 100 doors just for the sake of it, just so you can say that, right? But not own a decent percentage of it and not do a lot of work associated with it. I think it's better to start smaller where you could be 
a larger part of the general partnership ownership. You can get a bigger piece in the deal. You have the opportunity to do a lot more of the work, rate, you know, practice raising money when you only need 300,000 versus 3 million and be very involved from the start to finish with the bank, the attorneys, legal team, and get your hands dirty and do all of that. And you're going to learn that that skill set that you've learned from working on a smaller deal is going to help you get a bigger chunk of ownership and a bigger deal at some point. And you're going to have to make way more money than if you did it the reverse way and sat sidelines to somebody else that ran a larger deal for you. So I think really there's nothing wrong with starting a little smaller. You're going to learn more. You might not make a ton of money, but that's okay. Be patient. It will come. And I think that's just like high level advice for someone getting into multifamily. Yeah, I agree. When it comes down to your first deal, the 2016 one, how many doors was that again? 12 units. Okay. 12 units. Okay. And at this point, obviously that was a great transition to first get, you know, your feet wet. And now you're picking up a hell of a lot bigger doors at this point, but but there's levels to it, right? You know, somebody just yeah. starting off. It's always levels. Bag, yeah. There's always levels to it. And uh, even if you have a goal to hit the hundred door unit or whatever it is, it might not be overnight type of thing, right? Most likely it won't yeah, be. Oh, never. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't happen overnight. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of people that really, think, you know, like you said, man, it's a sexy industry. People want to yeah. get into it. If you're not committing to do it for at least several years, sure. I don't think there's really any point in jumping into it in the first place because you're not going to get rich just off of doing one deal. And the really good deals that we find, you know, I've I've had three deals now where we've made seven figures on a seven figure check on in under a year by buying and flipping a large apartment complex. And so those really good deals only came from working, you know, 70, 80 hours a week consistently for years. And then you finally come across like these really good deals. And so that's the really the basis of all this is finding a good property to buy. A lot of people yeah. start, they're so worried about what their logo is and what their name of their company yeah. is going to be. It's like, none of that really matters. You got to first find a property to buy. And then you start figuring out who's going to invest in it and who's going to fund it and finance it, right? There's all these different pieces to the team, but the base of all that is finding a deal. And there's a lot of gurus out there that'll, you know, kind of lead you in circles before you get to that part, right? In the course or whatever you're learning, but the deal is all that matters at first. So when you're making, when you're doing these flips on multifamily, are you guys leaving kind of meat on the bone, as they say, uh, with something to be done for the end buyer or? Sometimes. 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 I mean, it's like, you know, it's, you know, it's a good strategy, right? You go in, you renovate half of it, you leave half for the next. I mean, it's a good marketing strategy, but there's a lot of money out there right now that are, they're buying everything, anything and everything. And every broker is packaging every deal as a value add. Yeah. Like you don't see a deal that's not the value add, even if it's not. That's yeah. just how they market it. So some deals, we will leave a ton of meat on the bone just because we got it very early on. We got it in really rough shape and we'll give it to the next person in good shape and then they'll take it to great, right? And that's where we make our spread or, or we'll buy it and we'll do all of it and we'll just hold it long term. You know, we'll, we'll bring it to the point where it's turnkey or we'll leave some meat on the bone. It just kind of depends. Yeah, I think that's a great transition. You know, when it comes down to a lot of these properties out there, a lot of people are saying, you know, multifamily is overpriced right now, you know, and it's it's hard to pick up decent deals, I guess, when it comes down to meat on the bone. Obviously, that's not like you're still picking up deals, but, you know, yeah. do you have any feedback on on that? Yeah, I just closed on 400 units in September. 
yeah. two deals. So, you know, another 20 back in August, about another 20 on my own. You know, there's, there's all this talk all the time. Yeah. <laughs> there's always talk. Listen, what I will say is that whether the market's upside down, left, right, you know, wherever it's going, there's always a deal to be had. And think of this, it's always relative, right? The market is now at what people would say, even with COVID, still an all-time high. You just need to find a deal that's at the bottom end of that spectrum uh, yeah. in terms of price, right? There's a range and you need to be looking for deals in that bottom 10 to 15% of the pricing level. And in general, uh, I mean, you obviously need to run your numbers and underwrite the deal as part of our process, create a financial model. But generally, you finding deals in that, that bottom 15%, bottom 20% of the price range, those are going to be the low-hanging fruit that we want to go for. And so you need to not buy into the hype of all these on-market deals. I mean, I barely look at on-market deals anymore. We have a very strong off-market uh, outgoing, outbound campaign in terms of cold calls and mailers and all the same stuff that a lot of single family people do, we do for apartments. And we're looking for the deals that are not on the market. And that, you know, the one out of 300 that we come across, that's a really good one. And I'll break down, for example, in 2019, we're still tracking our 2020 numbers, but in 2019, we looked at 450 deals. We underwrote a little over 200, we made about 125 offers and we bought three properties. That's so, you know, we yeah. bought three, that's like one out of every 120 that we looked at, we ended up buying. Yeah. So it's, you know, we look at a lot of deals yeah. and we throw out the bad ones and we go after the good ones and some of the good ones we get and some of them we don't. That's good. Let's talk more about the leads. You know, you mentioned cold calling, you mentioned basically direct mail marketing. And this is what, you know, brokers would do. Or obviously, if you're in the single family realm, like you might be doing this yourself for marketing to get your leads. But a lot of the pocket listings when it comes down to multifamily come from the brokers. And a majority mm -hmm. of them are simply just calling up and making those calls to build those relationships. So do you have your own in-house team that's, that's calling these leads or building these leads? Yeah, so we have tons of relationships with actual brokers, you know, Marcus yeah. Millichap, Arcadia, CBRE, those the brokerage firms. But we also have our own in-house team where we are doing outreach directly to the, to the owners and sellers ourselves. Yeah. So we have a team of, at any time, five to 10 cold callers. And we also do a lot, a lot of outbound mail. We'll send about 500 a week when we're really in acquisitions mode we'll, to our target markets. And granted, that doesn't sound like a huge number, but when you talk in single family, yeah. you know, single family, there are millions and millions and millions of, you know, there might be, I don't know how many single family homes there are in the United States. It's over a hundred million probably. Yeah. There's only 18 million apartments or something like that. So, you know, there's a lot less. And when you're in your target market, you know, there's significantly fewer leads than there are single family. So it's basically just those two models, you're doing direct mail marketing and then cold calling? Any other yeah, direct mail, cold calling, you know, really it's those three and then broke or those two and then brokers, cold yeah. calling, direct mail brokers. That's our main source of deals. What, what would you say is your, your best one or is there one that stands out more than others? We get the most deals from brokers for sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, they're in the business for years and years and years building relationships yeah. with owners and yep. they have deals that just come to them because of their relationships already they, you know, they've put in a ton of time already doing it. So you might as well be talking to 20 to 30 different brokers at any time. 
oh. in the markets you're looking in and, and just constantly communicating with them, seeing what they have. They've always got deals they're working. They've always got, you know, under the table deals that they'll yeah. be able to share with you. You just need to be constantly talking to them enough to where they trust sharing those with you. So. And then it, when you are building those relationships in the beginning, it's almost notorious for these brokers to kind of like test you in the beginning, right? Like they'll always send yeah. you a lot of the, some of the BS in the beginning. So it, it's important that you underwrite the deal and send it back how, how it should be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, now it's different when you talk to a new broker, you know, I've got a track record, but when I first started, you know, I didn't go to, well, let's just say this, I didn't go to CBRE when I first started or Bercadia. These are really big national brokers. I would go to the more local brokerage shops, build a relationship with them. But even still in the beginning, they're going to want to see you're actually serious. Like if they send you a deal, you better take a look at it and get back to them and give them some feedback on it and yeah. go tour with them and meet them and tell them, you know, maybe it doesn't work out, but why doesn't it work out? Here's my numbers. Uh, here's my spreadsheet. Here's my underwriting model. Check it out. Let me know, you know, I'm, you're, you want 2 million. I'm, I'm only at 1.4, but here's where my numbers are. Maybe if you find something that I'm doing wrong, let me know, but you can be pretty open with them. And, you know, a lot of times they know they're putting a property on the market that's overpriced, but that's where the, seller wanted to list it and that's their target pricing. So, you know, you just got to be open with them and, and share actual feedback uh, and, and they'll start sending you more stuff. They know you're, you're not going to always do deal on the first deal. There's only one buyer for each property they put out and they've got hundreds of buyers and they're putting out maybe a dozen properties a year. So, you know, part of their job is working with buyers that don't end up buying every deal they put out. Let's talk about the location. So you're, you're in several markets at this point, but how are you figuring out your target location and what kind of factors, you know, are you guys really shooting for? I think the biggest thing to look for, well, it depends. I'll give you, a, yeah. <laughs> I'll give you an, it depends and I'll follow that up because there are a lot of people that really want to dig in and tell you to spend a dozen hours looking at a market and all the statistics around it and every single little thing. And I think that's good if you're not from a market and you don't understand it. I have made a lot of money and bought some really good properties and made my investors a lot of money buying properties outside of Detroit in the suburbs. Not in Detroit. You hear Detroit, it's the hood. It is, yeah. it is the hood. I'm talking about the suburbs where you still have A and B class neighborhoods like most cities. And, and I've, I've done some really good deals there. But if you look at Detroit Metro as a whole, statistically speaking, it's not a good market. The population decline there is disgusting. If you look at Detroit, it's just it's not good, right? And then yeah. in the city of Detroit itself. But there are still some really solid places out in the suburbs that are great to invest in. And I've bought properties there. I own properties there. It's really good to invest in. So I only knew that though, because I grew up there and I, and I lived there, right? You yeah. go to somewhere like Indianapolis or Cincinnati, another Midwest city, right? They're, they don't look like a Dallas or an Austin on paper, but there's some great little, you know, there's great pockets in every market to invest in. You just need to know where. So I always tell people your first deal is always best to be in your backyard because you can learn. If you don't have the ability to invest in your city, your market, maybe you live in an LA or New York or, you know, San Diego. I mean, you're not syndicating deals in San Diego. Most people aren't at least. And so you got to go somewhere else, do some research, go visit it. It's really good if you know a person there that understands the market. 
I don't need to go and spend a dozen hours analyzing Dallas. I li- you know, I live in Austin. I've only been familiar with Texas for a couple of years now though, but I don't need to spend time doing that Dallas because I drive around the city and you can see what's happening. And it's, yeah. it's like, wow, the growth here is crazy. I look at the companies moving in, you know, and the tech jobs and industrial and the Amazon warehouses popping up. And I know there's significant growth there. The pricing alone over the past two years in apartments indicates yeah. that there's significant growth. So, you know, you look at that, you look at job growth, population growth, and then you pick the specific location in that market that fits the type of product you want to push for. And and I think you look at some st- statistics around that. And if everything looks good, I think you're safe to invest there. As long as you're buying for the right price, you really should be safe in most markets. Sure. You know, it's when people overpay that they get screwed. Yeah. Was there like a certain population growth that you like look for percentage wise or... I know this kind of gets like down to the nitty gritty and all this is a nationwide thing. It can vary, obviously. So yeah, it can really vary. I mean, like I said, you could go to a market like Indianapolis, which is where I'm in now. And I'm I'm looking to invest quite a bit here. And there's not a ton of population growth. It's really slow and steady. I think it's between like one and 2%. And it's not like Austin, which is, you know, 4% or 5%, right? It's not like massive growth. But it's still a really good steady market to be in. And there's enough steady jobs here, diversity of jobs that, you know, I know if I buy the right type of B or C class product for the right price, it's going to be a good investment. So, you know, I think it's good to look for incoming jobs into the market, large companies moving there. I think that's one indication factor. Look at the absorption rate for how many apartments are really needed, how many are being built. If you're in a market where they're overbuilding stuff, that's not good, right? You look at like Seattle in a little or Denver. Yeah. Yeah. And they're building so many apartments. Well, if you start to see the demand for apartments lower than the amount they're building, you don't really want to be there, even if it's a great city to be in, right? And the growth metrics seem good. I don't know. That would worry me a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you definitely want to see that there's a demand to meet the need for the amount of apartments being built. And I think that one of the bigger ones I look at is unemployment rate. You know, you want to be below the national average and you don't want to be in a market. I think it's really easy to say for me, you don't want to be in a market where there's just one major employer. I don't prefer to invest in areas where there's just a military base or just, you know, a large oil company that runs it, even if it's booming, you know, those things go up and down and up and down all the time. And there's times where they're, you know, bringing in a ton ton of people and there's times they're letting a ton of people go. And so... I stick to major MSAs that I know are growing or in good shape or that I know well, and I pick good locations in those markets. And I think that's a really strong strategy long-term. Is there any markets that you think are, I guess, up and coming or, or is there any signs that you, you kind of look for to see that up and coming next you know, hotspot? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, spots right now where you see large population and job growth, I think that's like the major factor. I think jobs drive everything, to be honest sure. with you. I think of course. when jobs are coming to market, like that's the biggest thing. That's what's going to make people move there. That's what's going to have people stay there. That's what's going to keep people paid. Yeah. That local GDP stays strong. I mean, I think it's jobs or everything. So look for areas where jobs are moving. I mean, up and coming, what's Austin, Texas, where I live is one of the top couple fast growing cities in the country. Some of the suburbs, the city I live in, population growth is like 14%. It's insane. Yeah. And I, know, so, I know a lot of people in California right now, like several of my friends are actually all moving to Texas right now. So oh, it's yeah. like, they're, oh. they're all moving to Texas. Texas yeah. is insane. I mean, te- I'm telling you, Texas is, you know, it already is a powerhouse, but it's going yeah. to be the number one powerhouse in the next five to 10 years for 
for jobs and everything. I just, everyone's moving here. It's really crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, a while ago, somebody actually explained it, you know, multifamily investing to me like this, that it's basically like a, a long-term flip, right? It's all about the value add in all type of real estate. And if you can get the value add, increase the rents, what separates multifamily from, you know, the residential is you don't need to worry about an appraisal, you know, coming in <laughs> accurate or whatever. You don't need to worry about yeah. that. You can actually, you know, make the numbers yourself by what the business is producing. So, you know, when you mention, you know, Detroit, even the suburbs of Detroit, I naturally have always thought to myself, like, because of the decline, um, you know, how can somebody be able to actually like sell it at the end of the day? But at the end of the day, there's, there's always somebody to be able to pick up these properties and yeah. And there's uh, still a couple million, you know, there's still over a million people in that metro area. A couple of the largest apartment owners in the country actually live in Metro Detroit. There's a lot of old money there. And really? so they're, yeah, yeah. Edward Rose and Sons, that family, they own about 75,000 apartments. They're, I think, the top three largest private owner in the country. There's a couple really, really big names. I, I can name three or four off the top of my head that own north of 20,000 units there, just their families, right? And so there's a lot of old money families that own a lot of apartments. It's actually kind of tough to get in there just because they own so many, they hold them all. And most of those guys, they own them free and clear. And yeah. so, you know, the, but there's a lot of buyers, right? And there's a lot of people that have popped up, syndicators, stuff like that, that are still in that area. So when deals pop up, there's still a lot of eyes on it and a lot of demand if it's in the right location. Yeah. So, you know, regardless of what the metrics say, the properties are still staying 96% plus occupied. There's still great occupancy. There's, you know, the economy there is fairly stable. And so in general, you know, buying apartments there, you know, the past decade has been a pretty good investment. And, you know, where things were buying in the 30,000 per unit, then five, six years ago, we're in mid, maybe 40,000 per unit. Now we're selling for 70, 80,000 per door. So, you know, regular B-class products, sim- not too unlike something you'd find in a Fort Worth or Houston. It's, it's very similar type of properties and type of, you know, maybe a little higher cap rate, but not too different. But, but yeah, so you, you had a good explanation. The difference between commercial real estate, not just multifamily, but commercial real estate and uh, residential real estate is that the value is derived from the income and the, the operations of the business uh, and the property, right? The, the amount of net operating income that the property produces determines the value based on yeah. the cap rate of the market. So you can control the value effectively. Yeah. And there will be a certain time, like a, you know, somewhere in the holdings of like 10 years or so roughly where the return on investments going to start declining a little bit, right? You're going to hit a certain peak. So that's why a lot of, a lot of the syndicators or multifamily investors typically cash out sometime before then, but instead of like the example of the old money guys that just hang on to forever. Yeah. 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 It really depends what you want to do. And I know over time, my strategies changing and has changed, you know, but for our syndications, when we're trying to hit really high, you know, IRRs or internal rate of returns, we want to get a really high rate of return for our investors. We'll sell within a three-year period to do that. And, you know, I've had times where we've almost doubled investors' money in under three years and under two years even, and and they love it, right? And they reinvest with us and we do a really good job for them and they enjoy it. And then there's somewhere we want to hold long-term and cash flow and, you know, maybe eventually we'll pay it off and own it free and clear. It just kind of depends on the property and what we're doing with it and what our investors 
you know, would like to see in terms of their investment. Yeah. Yeah. A little pro tip is if you ever get some private money lending or however that works out, and then you basically get your investors, their money back a lot sooner than they anticipated and a better return or a strong return, then they always just give you the money right back. And oh yeah. 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 They're going to want to reinvest with you, especially if you get it back sooner and with a higher rate of return than than what you promised originally. Yeah. Right. So it's a they, they do, they want to keep, they want to keep it working. Yeah. So you talked about occupancy rate and, you know, shooting for the 96, 97% is, is great numbers because you know that obviously you're priced right, right? You know, if you're at 100%, you're under market on your income that you could be making. Rest, um, yeah. Has there been any times that like you take over a property and it's just your occupancy rate is scary low or, or something that would just naturally start shaking oh, yeah. up a little bit. Yeah. What kind oh, of numbers? Yeah. Yeah. We bought a property of 65% occupied. Actually it was 60. The rents on the occupied units were, you know, pretty average, a little below market, but for the condition of the units, they were probably right on point. Yeah. But the problem was the owner had not maintained the property. And so units would come available. I mean, you know, we'd tour the property and the leasing agent uh, and the maintenance team wouldn't even know which units were vacant, which weren't. Half of them were vacant, but you know they they couldn't keep track of them. They didn't know which ones were almost ready to be leased. Like they weren't renovating the units when they were done with them, and they would just leave them vacant and not put money back into the property. And it was just a cycle of downhill, downhill, downhill. And so you know if you're not willing to pay for turnover on these apartments and do the paint and carpet and clean them up or yeah. take care of damages that were caused, I mean you're yeah. just you know you're going to be in a cycle of more and more vacancy. You've got to get units ready to be leased quick and release them. No, you, you, you definitely, know. yeah, I mean, you definitely need to treat, you know, multifamily or any type of real estate investment more like a garden. Like you got to water it, you got to maintain it, gotta pick out the it, weeds. Yeah. Yep. Amen. <laughs> you have to, it's a bit, each property is a business in itself. It has to be managed. They have employees and it has to be managed properly and you know, oversight, you can't let it go. Otherwise it's not going to manage itself. I love it. Well, David, let's talk about where you see yourself going and kind of goals you have, you know, moving forward before we start just talking about what you got going on in in the near future. I I know you got some awesome products some services coming out as well that definitely want to plug out there to any of the listeners. It's a no brainer when you mentioned it to me. So, so yeah, what, what do you got going on in the future? What kind of goals do you have moving forward? Yeah. So my time is divided between my real estate company, Obsidian Capital, and my software company, Real Estate Lab. And so, you know, Obsidian, I think our goal is between four and five large assets by the end of next year is what we're looking to buy on top of our new developments that we're working on. We're putting together 150 unit new development in Austin right now. We want to buy another five assets by the end of next year. For the software company, we're launching the actual software platform in March of 21. Uh, It's a full suite acquisitions platform for multifamily investors to help you manage and track all your deal pipeline acquisitions. You'll be able to fully underwrite and analyze deals start to finish in the software. A lot of it's automated where you just upload the financials and it'll, it'll do like a lot of it for you. It'll read the financials, give you insights on it, plug those numbers for you into the analyzer. You send LOIs, all, all that stuff you'd be able to do right in the software, generate real nice reports, all that kind of stuff. And so that's launching in March. In the meantime, under Real Estate Lab, we started a community though, 
where you know I'm kind of able to mentor a large group of people at at once instead of I've done a little bit of one-on-one type of coaching in the past and you know it's like I want to be able to help as many people as I can at once and so this group allows me to do that we have a couple of group calls a week you know a networking group where everyone can communicate share resources we're going to get together one or two times a year and then I have a you know full video course for anyone involved as well as all these tools I'm going to share so that's the community that I just launched Okay. I love it. And how can people get a hold of you in regards to that? Or how can they be a part of it? Yeah. The best way is if you have Instagram, hit me up. My tag is real estate Jedi. It's my handles. Shoot me a DM, follow me. We can chat or you can go to learn.realestatelab.com and you can get all the details there as well. I love it, man. I love it. Well, bro, you just gave an hour of your time and nothing but knowledge. Like I I could literally just stay on here for hours with you and and talk real estate because you got so much experience, which is awesome. So anything that the listeners could do to actually give back to you? Back to me. Or myself. I mean, first of all, give Mr. Brandon Elliott nothing less than a five-star review on iTunes and every other platform. <laughs> you know, there's nothing I really need at this point. I, I, I want a lot of people that want cash flow and that want, you know, to build a, a portfolio of real estate. You want to invest in larger deals, like make a commitment to yourself. It's not an easy thing to do. You know, I've been doing this for almost five years now. I work 80 hours a week, you know, I'm, I'm a straight up hustler. That's, that's all I do. I'm a worker, man. And like, you got to be really willing to commit if you want to scale and hit these levels. And so make a commitment to yourself that you're going to do it. You're going to take it real seriously. You want to master it. And I promise you're going to be really successful. So anyway, I can help, you know, hit me up and I'm always trying to give back. So let's get in touch. David, man, I appreciate your time so much. I really do. A tremendous amount of value. So all the listeners, if you were driving and got to listen to this, I'm sure there's tons of gold nuggets, but you're definitely going to want to go back to this and re-listen to it and take some notes. I know I got a bunch right here, which is awesome. But yeah, as always, make sure you connect with David. There's a lot more to be learned from this guy. And if you want to connect with me, you can always do so at BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Otherwise, on Instagram, it's BrandonElliottInvestments. On Facebook.com, it is Facebook.com slash BrandonElliottInvestor. And if you guys need any help in regards to either credit repair, you can reach out at CreditRepairMobile.com or just getting educated on credit to be able to take your credit to the next level, be able to leverage it into real estate investing like we have, then it would be credit counselelite.com. So with that being said, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you get the newest notification every single Monday and leave a review. Let us know what you guys think about it. David, appreciate you, brother. Talk to you guys soon. Stay blessed. This has been another episode of Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit brandonelliottinvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below. Thanks again for joining. Until next time, God bless.